Welcome, Pudding People, to another episode of Everybody Loves Pudding. I am your host, Ken Seymour. We're doing an episode a little differently today. We're doing it in two parts. We're going to do a couple of movie reviews for you. I will be handling Thor, Love, and Thunder. And then we will segue into a movie review by our esteemed Richard Geiger, who will be talking about a little bit of spy action, a little bit of James Bondy goodness. Uh, you know, it's just uh, you can't can't say that there's no time to review it, but you can say that there's no time to die. So that's what he's going to be talking about. So we're going to uh, try and truncate our reviews just a little bit so that we can get you Two good reviews in the span of less than a single hour. But as always, we'll give you a little bit of an idea of whether we think this is something that you should have seen in the theater, whether it was something you should wait for on streaming services or possibly television, maybe buy the DVD, or whether it's something you should could just kind of ignore altogether. Um, we will give it a score of up to 100 points where we will individualize in separate categories what we think about the cast, the director, the costuming and props, the location, the score, that music, cinematography, plot and writing, and any bonus points that we want to give arriving at whatever score we get. And uh, no further ado, let's just kind of jump into the action. Um, so Thor Love and Thunder, released here in 2022, uh, the most recent cinematic uh outing for the MCU, um, at least as of the recording of this episode on the 1st of August. Um, just in general, I really think this is worth seeing in the theater. Uh, most of the MCU films are. They just they just do better in a larger venue because m the vast majority of them are very action-centric, a lot of special effects, a lot of, a lot of importance to sound, whether it's the uh, the sound effects or the music that's involved, also kind of sharing an experience. The MCU is not like other movies, uh, or I should say the MCU isn't like a lot of other uh, types of movies because it's now taken on an aspect that's very similar to comic books. It is a continued story where everything is connected. It's something that we can kind of share together in a space. Now, of course, we want to be careful with all of the everything that's been going on out there. Sometimes that uh, pesky COVID virus starts to become a little more communicable. They get new versions, so you always want to be a little careful on that. But if it's possible, yeah, seeing this in the theater, definitely worth it. If not, definitely get it on uh, your streaming service. It'll be on Disney Plus before long or buy the Blu-ray. It, it's, it's a good watch. Uh, now to jump into the more specific information, um, I think I'm going to start with the score this time because this is something new that we've added recently. Uh, we, we've always talked about how important the music is, but hadn't often included it, or if we did, it's just kind of a secondary thing. Um, this particular score for the film is, you know, basically a lot of 80s, uh, 90s, and a little bit of modern day stuff uh, peppered in there. It's, it's a really heavy uh, dose of Guns N' Roses for the most part. And if you're a fan of Guns N' Roses, then yeah, you're going to enjoy some of the stuff. If you're not, then you're not. I could have done without so much Guns N' Roses. I've never been an enormous fan of, of several. I mean, it's not, it's not that these are bad songs. They're great songs, but they're overplayed. Uh, you got Welcome to the Jungle, Paradise City, Sweet Child of Mine, all in there. But they do have some other kind of fun little bits and pieces. You got some Ciara in there. You've got Enya in there. Um, my favorite bit, though, was Dio uh, having Rainbow in the Dark. Uh, included. That was nice. I really like that song. I really like that artist. And I don't think that, uh, don't think he gets a lot of uh, love when it comes to uh, movie soundtracks. So that was nice to see. But for the most part, um, uh, except for that and maybe the Mary J. Blige song, I thought it was a, an underwhelming, uh, underwhelming choice in music. So it just didn't do anything for me. So I'm going to give that a 5 out of 10. Keep it nice and simple. I'm going to move straight on to the director. Uh, Taika Waititi comes back to the helm in Thor Love and Thunder. He um, 
he always does good. I like Taika. Um, sometimes he does better than others, uh, depending upon what he's doing. I liked what he did with the previous Thor film. Kind of brought it out of the d- dungy, dingy, uh, dark world side of things. But where his strength lies, he sometimes loses some things. So it's it's funny. I mean, he obviously knows funny. He knows how to to get to get the laughs and to, to just have fun with things. But at its core, from the comics anyway, and something that Matthew Branagh understood with the first Thor film is that Thor is Shakespeare. And and it's lost some of that seriousness. It's lost some of that kind of um, stature, that regality that kind of goes with Thor. Um, the reason that he can act the way he does is he's got a certain amount of power to back it up, but it's the the whole thing is just when you've lived a certain amount of time, you it, at least it would seem to me that you would have a certain seriousness, uh, seriousness about you. Um, I don't know. That's probably just my own bias in watching it, but I kind of miss that. So long as you can balance it, I can kind of overlook it, Um, like with Ragnarok. Ragnarok was so well-balanced between the action and the comedy, and it was just fun. I felt that there were several parts in this film where there was too much comedy. It just laughs are great, but if they break up the flow of the plot or the exposition... um, it just it just didn't work. There was just just a smidgen too much of it. I think I think if they could have stepped back a few of the jokes, it would have balanced better. Um, and you know there could be other things that play into that. Uh, maybe it's just that this is the second time I have seen this particular um, formula for Thor, but I don't think so. I think I think they went just a little overboard with the yucks. Um, so I feel that was a bit of a mistake, but really. In terms of the the direction, he obviously get, has the trust of his actors. Uh, he obviously has an understanding of where the plot of the film lives within the greater universe and how to get that story out there. So, I mean, it's it's kind of a small um, a small quibble. Um, I felt some of the pacing was a little off. I'm not sure whether that lies in the direction or whether it lies in the writing. I'm thinking that it lies in the writing, so I'm probably going to address that a little little more there. But ultimately, we're going to give that a uh, 12 out of 15 for the director. Now, the cast, a lot of returning names. Uh, so if you've watched Thor at all, basically everybody that you would expect to come back was back. Um, in addition... Because of where things were left off, you got a good dose of the uh, Guardians of the Galaxy at the beginning of the film because that's who he was with. So you got to see a lot of those individuals uh, return as well. Um, I was really happy with the casting of Christian Bale as Gore the God Butcher. I really like Christian Bale's work. He was the best Batman to be sure. Um, the the Nolan Batman trilogy is still the best Batman trilogy uh, Batman series of films that has been made to date. Um, and Hemsworth always does a great job. Natalie Portman is great to see her back and with a larger part. And uh, you know, as always, you know, spoilers. Uh, I probably should have said that before, but having a chance to have a, a good death scene, um, considering that this is multiple comic concepts all kind of smushed together in this film i was a little concerned but she had a great she had a great uh, death scene they kept the the character true to its roots and she got to have some real meat to play with on that that was nice to see tessa thompson is always great uh her as uh as the king of uh, new asgard it was you know pretty awesome uh having russell crowe in it and letting him do the the accent that was fantastic. He made a great Zeus, uh, but but Jamie Alexander coming back as Sif, oh man, that was so nice to see because having her disappear for what felt like was no real reason, uh, she should have been a part of this the entire time. 
you know, is similar to killing off the Warriors three in um, in Dark World. That no, oh, that that made me so mad when they did that. But um, but seeing her come back and have some decent little chunks to play with that was particularly nice. I thought uh, Kieran L. Dyer did a great job coming in as the son of Heimdall. Um, Axel, as it were, you know, uh, Axel Rose, uh, you know, that part is whatever. But he did a great job in his part. He uh, he definitely uh, acted the heck out of it, and I was, I was glad to see that. Uh, seeing Idris Elba come back, albeit briefly, was, re- uh, was really nice because his character was great, and you know, he's just a great actor. So even if it's just a small snippet, uh, it's nice to see him in that. Same thing with uh, Kat Dennings. I absolutely adore Kat Dennings, and I I will watch her in anything and just always hope to see her in a part. She's uh, super adorable, more often than not, and uh, and has a lot of fun with the parts that she plays. And just that just that hits me just right every time. Love it, love it, love it. Um, and seeing Brett Goldstein come in as Hercules at the end. I'm excited to see Hercules. I'm kind of curious where they're going to go with it. Um, I believe I remember seeing an article talking about it was like, how are they going to do Hercules? Because Thor is currently acting basically like Hercules does. Thor is serious. Hercules is not. How are they going to really, are they flipping it around? What are they, what are they going to do with this? Um, but as far as uh, actors go, that's an interesting, an interesting choice, and he did good on Ted Lasso. Um, I haven't seen him in a lot of other stuff, but uh, the the bits I have seen, he's been great. Um, so I'm kind of uh, cautiously optimistic about this because the the Hercules character could be really, really fun if it's done right. Um, we will see if it is done right at a later point. But seeing him come in, like I said, just just good there. Um, and then just, of course, being able to kind of see the little, the little surprises that they put in, uh, being able to get Matt Damon back for his running shtick, uh, and being able to have Luke Hemsworth re- uh, again, continue with uh, what they're doing with the theater troupe. That's just so much fun. But then getting Melissa McCarthy to come in to be uh, Hella is just kind of wonderful. Um, and uh, and Sam Neill as Odin. I mean, that, that whole thing is just, it's just a little joy that you can see. So, I mean, so casting, you almost couldn't get better casting than what you had in this. I'm going to give this an 18 out of 20. Uh, costuming and props, freaking gorgeous. The entire film was gorgeous. Not only uh, were the Asgardian outfits on point, all the alien stuff was great. There's a wide variety of different outfits, a lot of colors, a lot of striking colors, and a lot of uh, great design, sharp design, callbacks, um, you know, little hints and tie-ins and all this stuff. Just just beautiful uh, work all around. Um, so I got to say that was great. I'm not going to go too deep into that. I'm going to give that a 9 out of 10. Uh, locations. you got a lot of different places that you could go in this film. I mean, obviously, you have your locations on Earth, but they go to several um, alien planets as well. Um, you know, the the whole bit with the, the Guardians and the uh, <laughs> the destruction of the, the cathedral. Uh, you get to go outside uh, the, the known universe in some respects. The, the black and white... Uh, aspect of where they where they ended up going to confront Gore, that was really really nice. I mean, just a lot of a lot of again variety, a lot of striking style differences that kept things interesting, but it wasn't you know muddled. It was just a lot of fun. I, again, I thought they couldn't do too much better with the locations than they did. Uh, I'm going to give that an eight out of ten. Um, cinematography. Now this is. This is uh, important 
to an MCU film because you have to have great CGI. You've got to have great effects. You've got to have a, a real flow to be able to do the storytelling because there is so much of it done through action, uh, almost more than through the, the dialogue. Um, and the, the effects were solid. Um, the CGI was really pretty good. I have to say that um, the the goats were especially nice. The gods' uh, gathering that they ended up going to had so much in terms of CGI work that had to be done, and it would be that's because of how bright that scene is. It would be really, really clear when something was either just not even just bad if it was just substandard it would kind of i feel stand out i didn't i don't remember seeing anything like that in the theaters that everything looked sharp everything looked clear there was a lot of uh very obvious delineation to the different types of gods that were present of course we have to love bow the god of dumplings that was fantastic um but just in terms of through these locations, the, the camera angles that were chosen were dynamic and a lot of fun. And again, just kind of shows that they understand the source material that this comes from because you can't just do a standard two shot all the time. You've got to have some, some very interesting angles to come at the action from so that it can still be feel new and feel exciting. Um, the shadows could have been just really awful, but they weren't. They were, they were really well done. Um, even if they weren't going to be able to portray Gore in the way that he really should have been, I think for what they did, I think they did well. Um, so yeah, so in, in terms of it, uh, that was good. There's a lot of, a lot of shots either at night, uh, or in that, uh, dimension where everything is just kind of muted. Uh, and, and black and white. And in those situations, again, it can sometimes be very easy to lose the action because the lighting isn't good enough and just everything blends together. But that's not what happened. It was crisp. I didn't have any trouble following anything. Um, there was no shaky cam. Yay! I'm always a fan of no shaky cam. Um, I mean, there was obviously going to be a, a number of cuts uh, to, to kind of best portray the action, but it wasn't excessive. So, I mean, yeah, so all in all, cinematography, really, really solid. Out of 15 points, I'm going to give it 13. Um, and then that brings us to plot and writing, the the meat, the nitty-gritty, as it were. Um, uh, I have mostly positive feelings about the plot. It was disjointed in, in spaces, I mean, because they had to get them away from the Guardians uh, and then into the rest of the film that... The two sections didn't feel joined. But also, um, tonally, like I said, there was the issue with the the level of comedy that they put into it compared to the serious nature of it. I don't think it was a great idea to mix the Lady Thor storyline with the, the Gore the God Butcher storyline. Um because both of those are full and rich stories in the comics that have a lot to them and and could easily flesh out an entire film or multiple films on their own. But because of the way it's presented, you don't get to dig as deep into things as, as you might want to. So while we definitely did get to see uh, the journey that... Jane Foster took it was a little truncated we li we lost nuance uh, because of the way that they handled gore and uh, part of it being probably rights issues and where they actually want to go with things it felt flat in spots he, he and you know they obviously they tried really hard at the beginning to make sure that you were going to have some empathy for the gore character but after that initial bit you, he's just the mustache twirling villain at that point. And 
you know, except for like the throwaway line about, oh, that sword corrupts everything it touches. We needed to see the corruption. We needed to understand what happened. And they were not able or unwilling to dedicate the time to see how that character changed um, to really be more sympathetic and to be a less black and white kind of a fight. Um, I like what they did with uh, their interpretation of how the broken hammer would work. That was nice. I really liked that. How they tied things together was really pretty solid. Um, the adoption of the uh, Gore's child at the end, the way they did that, okay, yeah, that was pretty solid. I mean, what they did, it was good, but because of how it was approached, that was all it ever could be. It could not be great. Uh, there just was not enough time for it to be great. Um, you know, I've heard some people say that they felt that the film was trying to approach um, L, um, certain LGBTQ issues and was uh, approaching things with an agenda and all that. And that's just patently absurd. Um, I mean, there's definitely representation, more representation in the film, but it's done well. It's not done as just to show, hey, we have a character that is of a non-traditional sexual orientation or whatever. No, it's they are that. It is part of who they are, but it's incidental to the plot for the most part because as, as incidental as something like that can be. That's just not where the focus is. They happen to be that. Move past it. It's they're great characters and enjoy the story. Um, but uh, yeah, just all all in all, I, I can't um, I can't say that there was anything that just made me go, man, that was just you know god awful. But like I said, it just the only problem I had is they didn't have enough time to really develop some of the nuance that would have made it really, really good, um, even with the two hours that they had. Um, I I feel like the way that they approached Eternity was solid because that's something that would be difficult for a lot of audiences to, to grapple with because of the nature of how the comic cosmic entities work. So I thought that was pretty solid. Um, I liked the um, the prevalence of the Celestials uh, that were in there at multiple points. And one specific Celestial that was mentioned at multiple points. If you missed it, it's an important link to the other films and a clear kind of indication as to where they're kind of going with things. Now, that being said... There is no reason the Celestials should have been at the Gathering of the Gods. That was dumb. They are not on the same cosmic hierarchical level. They would not hang out and play cards. They would not act as guards. There's no reason that they should have been there uh, for that little breakout scene. I just, I do not understand that. Um, maybe he just wanted to have fun and show him there, and that's fine. I get, I get that having fun with it, but that is not what Celestials are, and I feel like it kind of lessens them to put them in there like that. Um, but other than that, yeah, solid all around. I'm going to give that a 16 out of 20 in terms of plot. Um, and then we come to bonus points. Areas where we get to artificially inflate or decrease the uh, the total score of the film so that it ends up landing where we feel that it really should land in the first place. Um, I have two bonus points for this film. Um, there were just two elements about it that I really, really enjoyed. And as much as I might have said there was too much comedy, both of these are comedy points that were just phenomenally done and I loved um, one is the goats, the screaming goats. That was great. That was so ridiculous. It was a thing that stuck with me most about the film and made me giggle continually for the next several days after I watched it. I wanted it as my ringtone. 
it's just absurd and fun because the goats are supposed to be there. It's part of Norse mythology, or if not that, at the very least, it's part of the comic tradition of what Thor's supposed to have access to. Um, but uh, you know, it was just it was just great the way that it was uh, handled and approached, and it was an I felt the right balance of how much we should have seen the goats. Um, also, uh, the theater gag, the fact that they continued the theater gag from basically all the films since the second, and they just keep making it more and more ridiculous and outlandish and getting more actors and actresses to just pop up with small roles uh, to be silly versions of the other character. I, I can't help but love that. Um, and seeing, uh, seeing the bottle of liquid misting in the eyes because Matt Damon can't cry. That was, that was just awesome. <laughs> I love that. So two points for good silliness. Um, all in all, that brings us up to a score of 83. That's a solid B. That is a film that you can watch and you can enjoy. That's a film that you might even watch again. Um, I know I will. Uh, if for no other reason than to do the kill count. But I will also uh, watch it just for fun. Um, and hopefully uh, you will see it and enjoy it as much as I did or or not. Uh, if not, you can always say, hey, Ken, you are absolutely wrong because you know how to get a hold of us on our social media platforms, which we won't go into on this particular episode because we want to kind of retool those Anyway, just a little bit, uh, update some things, make it snazzy, make it snappy. But that's enough for me. I know you all want to hear what Richard thinks about uh, a, a suave spy from the UK. Uh, and to that end, we will now switch over to the amazing Richard Geiger. Welcome putting people to part two of our movie review episode extravaganza. I don't really think that's how it was presented, but uh, anyway, we listened to a review from Ken on a great movie that I just haven't gotten the opportunity to see yet. And now we're going to move on to another movie that hopefully people have already seen. I say hopefully because it's a pretty good movie from a pretty good franchise. And I'm speaking, of course, about the most recent James Bond film, No Time to Die. Uh, this movie was actually released last year and was supposed to be released even longer ago. But a little, little something happened back in 2019 that delayed this movie you know, a couple years. And now we get the pleasure of being able to see No Time to Die on Amazon Prime. I don't know if you are aware of this or not, but Amazon recently purchased MGM. And one of the franchises tied to MGM, of course, is the Bond franchise. So you can go on to Amazon Prime and watch virtually every Bond movie. I say virtually because there's, in this review, an important omission in terms of the Bond series. So let's start with the review and kind of the discussion. Of course, we do the point scale. Uh, we award points based on different categories. Those categories can total up to 100. And if you get 70 points, that's a C. That's not a bad movie. You can go onto our website, everybodylovespudding.com, and review most of our previous scores for movies that we have reviewed. There's a couple things that haven't been added on there yet, but for the most part, all the scores up there. So you can kind of compare uh, what we graded some of our movies at to what some we graded some of the previous movies are at. And honestly, when we do a lot of these reviews, uh, Ken and I will look at our previous reviews and we see, hey, we've given this particular movie a score of whatever. Let's go look at our other movies and compare. Did we like this movie at this score? 
better than the other movies at the same score and we kind of tweak our scores accordingly. So it's not exactly a 100% scientific method by any stretch, but it's our method and that's the most important thing. Now, I will say in terms of reviewing this particular movie, one of the things to keep in mind is this particular sequence of Bond movies kind of revolve around each other, meaning as we've gone through one movie, there are elements in the second and then the third, like it just continues to grow upon itself where the story builds and evolves. Now, in in, in this one, and I say this sequence, I'm referring to the Daniel Craig series of Bond movies. Uh, if you recall, one of the first ones that came out, I should say, the first Bond movie that came out was actually... Oh, gosh, what was the story on it? There was a Casino Royale was a a movie that they had actually done, but not in the traditional Bond, I guess you could say, um, likeness. So this is actually kind of a remake of an original Bond story. And with the Casino Royale story, you got the introduction to the new Bond. You got the follow-up of the story, right? Like, you got you to gotta see something new, something fresh, something modern. Uh, introducing the characters kind of slowly over time. And that movie was, honestly, it was pretty good, right? Casino Royale came out in 2006. It didn't have a blockbuster budget, but it did fairly well. After that was Quantum of Solace. And that just took off right after the ending of Casino Royale. And that movie itself was okay. N- not It was missing a lot of elements. It, it was maybe one of the weakest of the more recent Bond movies. Um, then you saw a, a little bit of a break. 2012 was Skyfall. And that one, honestly, that one blew up. It was a very strong film, great action sequences. Uh, It had a lot of the elements that you want to see in a Bond movie from chases to scenery to like you name it. A great movie made a ton of money. That movie was like a billion dollar movie. We knew the Bond movies could have box office power, but that one, man, oh my gosh, that one really took off. Okay, after that, we saw Spectre. There was a lot of hope with Spectre, but Spectre really didn't quite hit the notes that everybody wanted it to hit. It wasn't a bad movie, but certainly one isn't as good as some of its predecessors were. Now, that particular one got a much bigger budget, right? Like, okay, we can make a billion dollars. Let's pump some money into this one and make a billion dollar movie. That didn't quite play out. Still made a lot of money but it just didn't quite hit the same notes. Now, this is important because if you would, if you haven't watched No Time to Die, I highly recommend that you watch the other movies and that you watch Spectre because they pull elements from those previous movies. What you run into with Amazon Prime right now is that Spectre is not on there. You have to buy it or rent it. So you have all these other sequences, all these other movies, except for that one that must be tied up somewhere else in a release schedule. Maybe you'll get to check that out later. But if you have the opportunity to watch Spectre somewhere, I would say watch that one before you watch No Time to Die. So No Time to Die, of course, had that same monster budget. It just got struck by timing. And that's really all it was. Bad timing. Still got a theatrical release, but obviously box office results weren't as strong as what they were hoping. And this was this was a big one because this was to be Daniel Craig's last go as James Bond. And it was had all the money, had the action, had the stylized everything, and pandemic and 
down the hill it went. Okay, that's that's unfortunate. But I will say, if you are a fan of the Bond series and you like the Bond movies and you haven't seen this one yet, definitely go to Amazon Prime and check it out. Now, we talk about our our scoring system that we've got for this. So I'm going to run down uh, briefly. We do cast, director, locations, props, and cinematography. Plot's a big one in there too. Now what we've done here recently, like very recently, is we've added a new category, uh, the long-awaited score. So we're talking about the music elements, the sound elements, uh, original songs, the background songs for the picture. So to kind of compensate, we cut back points from the director category and we cut back points from the cinematography cinematography category. So they still total 100. We just have a new category to put some scores on. Okay. As we most often do, I'll start with the cast for this particular movie picture show. Now, the great thing about this Bond franchise, as they've done in many other ones, is you carry the same cast from movie to movie. The characters know how to play their parts. They evolve, they grow, they get older, and it stays pretty consistent from film to film. Daniel Craig's going to be the big face that we're going to see in this. He's James Bond. He does a great job. Uh, You can see and it's even played out a little bit in this one. He's an older James Bond compared to when he did the the other ones. And it's even brought up in this particular one. So he's aged throughout this iteration of the franchise. And you can tell he looks a little older, a little wiser. And if you go and watch some of the other Bond movies, you can tell the difference in how he looks. And I'm that's not a I'm not saying that in, in a derogatory manner whatsoever. He just looks like like he's beefier. He looks older. He looked like a young pup in some of the other ones. It, he just looks like he's grown up. That's it, it's silly to say, but he just looks like a different person in this film compared to some of the other ones. But that's part of the storyline, too. Now, what we see in this particular one is, like I said, a little bit of a carryover from the previous movie that you can't watch on Amazon Prime. It's really, really annoying. So... Uh, you have a couple characters. Lee Sedu is one of those. Um, Christoph Waltz, who played Blofeld in the previous one, he shows up in this one too, right? So uh, there's a lot going on from previous iterations. We see Jeffrey Wright show up as Felix Leiter. Um, the Felix Leiter character showed up in all the like a ton of the other Bond movies, but in this generation, he was he's been in like all of them, so he's an important character. And Jeffrey Wright plays the Felix Leiter character uh, really well. Spoiler alert: they kill him off. So annoying. So if you if you haven't watched this movie, sorry, we always do spoilers in this movie. Um, but very sad. Like this is the end of the, this is the culmination of things. So I guess it's free reign to kind of do whatever you want to whoever you want in this movie. So let's kill off one of the main characters. Cool. Uh, Rory Kinnear as Tanner. He's been in a ton of these movies. Naomi Harris as Money Penny. Um, uh, ben Whishaw as Q. Uh, all of these, all of these faces are very familiar from their previous movies, and they do a great job. They present their characters exactly how they're supposed to. Ralph Fiennes is M. Um, uh, Lashana Lynch shows up on here. Uh, that name may sound familiar to a lot of you who have done some of the reviews or listened to some of our reviews, as she is in Captain Marvel as Maria Rambeau. So. Um, it's nice to see some familiar faces, and of course there are some new faces. The bad guy, Sefin, Remy Malik. Now, you know who Remy Malik is, right? You've seen him in a lot of things. Uh, most recently, you would have seen him in Mr. Robot, or of course in Bohemian Rhapsody as Freddie Mercury. Um, I guess I'm a little older school than that because... I first saw him in The Pacific, and he played a character which, if you read the book that the 
the stories are based off of uh, with the old breed. Um, that particular character that he played in the show as like kind of a creepy soldier compatriot who's you'd have to see it. He's not like that in the book at all. So it's an interesting portrayal of that particular character in the Pacific. But that's the first place I saw him, right? He's a great actor. He does lots of good things. Honestly, he's the weak spot in this particular movie. Um, and that's... A lot of times you can say the weak spot as in, oh, that person did a bad job. I'm just saying the other cast is so good in this movie that he is the low man on the totem pole in this presentation. Uh, one of the top secret parts of this movie that's really good is Anna de Armas. And you see her a lot in various things. Um, I don't, it's hard to picture her as like an action star, I guess you can say, but she's actually kind of an action star and she kills it in this movie. And they put her in there for like a whopping 10 minutes. Uh, I, she needed more FaceTime by far cause she was great in this movie. Uh, this movie is like two and a half hours long and she's in it for just this little tiny throwaway snippet that honestly, it's like they created this role just to showcase her. And I, I left wanting more of her role in this particular movie. Uh, if you watch it or if you have watched it, you'll know what I'm talking about. She does great. Anyway, the cast as a whole the carryovers, the, the display of the characters, everybody did such a good job in this particular one that I, I had to give it some pretty high marks. Oh my gosh, where are my notes at? Uh, I gave the I gave the cast in this one a 17 out of 20 possible points. So yeah, I really thought the cast was pretty solid in this one okay so on to the next category the director now the director in this one is i want to say somebody that very few people would be familiar with uh including myself carrie joji Fukunaga. what has this person directed recently um, what is this here? A Land Rover commercial? Uh, there's a movie called Maniac. Beasts of No Nation. And this other one, Jane Eyre. You might have heard of that one. I was from 2011. There's not a lot of, um, not a lot of history, let's say. Uh, he, he did do some episodes of, true detective though so that's probably what most people might recognize that name from so not a lot of track record in this some history yes some decent stuff yes but just not a lot of it overall i want to say this movie had a good look good feel good pace this is a bond movie through and through it was presented as a bond movie through and through i think a lot of the actors already know how to do their parts uh, but what you see in this movie, and part of it's the script, part of it's how you build things. You have excitement, you have talking, you have dull. So the pacing in this movie at two and a half hours, actually it says the official runtime is like two hours and 45 minutes, uh, 43 minutes, but it, we'll say two and a half hours. Uh, the, the pacing on it is probably the worst aspect of it because there's some just, there's some times where there's just a lot of lull and in, in in terms of what the movie, what was presented to us, and I think I credit more of this to the cinematography and the editing aspect maybe than the directing aspect, is there was some elements on some previous Bond movies where they, all Bond movies in the past were kind of, had some cheesy, had some one-liners, had some action, had some things. And I guess, guess it depends on how you want to deliver this movie as to what direction you're going to go do you want to be that campy cheesy stuff or are you going to do serious but with all the awesome bond elements and i think we got the serious with the bond elements in there which is totally fine is it just there was just 
a lot in this movie and a lot of things that kind of came and went. Uh, like I said, the Anna de Armas section, nice that it was in there, but, but what, what was the point? Was it just to showcase her? Okay, fine. But how did it really drive everything as a cohesive unit? And a lot of times that falls into the writing as well. But you know what? The dude doing the directing does a lot of writing in this movie and other projects that he's done as well. So part of it kind of ties into the plot too. And I, 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 I like to punish the people who are directors and writers because if you're going to be a directing credit and you're going to take the like a full writing credit on it too, your category in our rating system is going to be affected by something like the plot as well. So overall, the the movie and the the pace, I think, and the lulls were probably the biggest issue that we saw. Uh, I'm not going to focus too much on the direction of the movie, uh, but I can't fault it too much. This was one of the categories that got adjusted in overall points. It's normally a 20-point category now. It's down to 15. I gave it a 10 out of that 15. Now, in, in terms of the next few categories to go over, these are the highlights, man. Um, locations, oh my goodness. One of the things that the Bond movies tend to highlight are these vast, colorful, vast, not colorful, vast, beautiful sunlit like all these types of locations that you can be at with houses no houses trees no trees desert water it's just this vast this landscape of awesome locations and i can tell you that this movie doesn't disappoint in terms of the color the excitement the presentation this one, and this ties into the cinematography because the cinematography also is about how do you show us these locations and the camera and how you pan in and out and you rotate and you look at the different views. And I'm telling you, man, this is a Bond movie through and through highlighted by these exotic, awesome locations, by the city locations, by the back streets. That's one of the killer killer elements of this movie and you get that a lot in some of the other movies but i think that this it just pops it stands out so whoever their location scouts were man they crushed it on this movie very good this is an easy score uh out of 10 points i gave it a 10 and if you've seen it you know what i'm talking about um uh, i'm going to then correspondingly go to the cinematography in this because it definitely has a tie-in for the most part the bond movies they don't use a lot of cgi there's definitely cgi don't get me wrong but they've stuck with you know actors and actor actresses doing stunts and being practical in their effects kudos to that big budget but let's put you know things exploding and vehicles roaming around in real light and once again this is a bond movie you get the action sequences you you get the cars chases you, you get the 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 gunfights you get the you know the roaming fist fights and gunfights like it's all the elements of the bond but presented to you in an appreciative way, at least in my in, in my view of this, I, I caught myself because I'm a Bond fan. Um, I can relate this to when there was a collection of VHS tapes that you could buy. Hey, this first collection is eight VHS tapes, and there's another one that's eight VHS tapes. I had all of those. I loved the Bond movies. I grew up with the Bond movies, so to see this one in all its glory was really to me very very fun and i really appreciated the look the feel the excitement the camera the colors the lighting so in terms of the cinematography uh this one used to be a 20 pointer now it's a 15 pointer i gave it a 13 so very strong elements for the look and the feel of this movie uh, next up is the props category the props category, um, 
it's costuming and props. The suits, the dresses, the shirts, the pants, the, the, the vehicles. I mean, you name it. Everything in this movie just popped the way it's supposed to. Um, like I said, practical effects. You're not, you're not doing a lot of CGI stuff. And I, I really think when you keep it clean and simple, but you have the presentation that's meaningful in the desired way it's supposed to be presented, you just get such a clean, classy feel. And you got that with all of those individual elements. And it's hard for me to point out one thing in particular or say one thing was lacking because the props in this one were just spot on, just spot on. Um, and this isn't a category to really dig super deep into, but it's a 10-pointer, and giving it 9 just feels like it it was the right thing to do. So if you look, if you look at the last few elements that we've gone over in terms of how they, how I rate things, right? Location, props, cinematography, we're like top marks on all of these elements here. So great, like I said, great look, color, feel, presentation for the movie. Okay. The next thing up is the plot. Now this one's still a 20 pointer. So it has a lot of impact and in watching this movie, um, Bond is basically is retired. He gets coaxed out of retirement um, by Felix, and then he kind of goes on to help Felix, but finds out there's more things going on, and then it just kind of unravels from there. Really, the, the, the highlight of this movie isn't the plot and the intricacies of the thing in the world that's going to destroy everybody, because that's every Bond movie. Um, like I said, the highlight of this movie is the look and the feel. So the, there has to be a plot. It has to revolve around something. And if you're going to say, Hey, something's going to kill everything. Let's stop them. That sounds like a bond movie to me. So there really is nothing special. If anything, it just kind of gets convoluted and drawn out. And this is where we, a lot of times make or break the movies and, this movie has such high scores in other categories that this one, it, like if the plot was kind of seamless, it turns this movie into just like a killer movie. But since the plot is so over the top and cheesy and your typical Bond thing, this is the one thing that's kind of that campy, cheesy, what's going to happen type of thing that you have to have your actors and the fancy setups and the beautiful cinematography built around this story. And for this story, it's, trust me, there have been far worse stories. There have been far worse stories in Bond movies than this one. But it really was the weakest aspect of this particular movie. And once again, if you watched it, you'll know what I'm talking about. I, as I go through this and... A lot of times when we do these reviews, I watch the movie a day before, two days before. I probably watched this movie about a week ago. And honestly, I, I can remember a couple key elements about this movie and the plot and, and just like, man, what is going on here? That type of thing. But it's so unremarkable that I can't remember some of the other key elements. I try to write things down. But in this particular movie, some of the parts were, like I said, just so over the top and not really memorable that I focused so much on the other things, the, the cast and the action sequences, that the plot was just kind of a meh type of feature for this movie. So if we're going to keep it consistent with what, we, what usually happens with movies that we review... This is still a 20-point category, but I gave it a whopping 12. So that's not an amazing score. Uh, but you know what? It's not necessarily enough to kill the score on this particular movie. Okay, last category is the new one. Uh, the score category. This one's based out of 10 points. Well... When the cars drive around in different sequences and you're showing these lush, lavish uh, landscapes, 
there's always something playing in the background and it's always complimentary, right? You always have like that bond feeling with the horns and like the 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 vast landscape type of music and of course you got all of that with this one of of course you did um there is there is nothing to me that's cooler in a certain sense than that bond theme song but provided it's done in if you look at the movies from the 70s, it still has that 70s guitar feel to it. But as you progress through it, it you get that modern, refined sound to it. And that Bond movie that you get out of this one is... It's kind of the same thing, right? There, there's, there's just a whole lot of cool elements to this. Now, in terms of something that was distracting. I never got that in this movie. You know, sometimes when you review a movie and you get the score, the score is like something that complements things or you don't even notice it because it's so unimportant. And I feel like this was much more complimentary, right? So when I, when I rate these, I, I, we've only done it a few times and our most recent review, we gave it a five. That was for the Snake Eyes movie. Well, of course, they're not going to put a lot of effort in the Snake Eyes movie for the, the sound, for the for the songs, right? Like, I just don't see it. I just don't see it being a point of emphasis. But in terms of the Bond movies, there's always some type of element of music. And there's always that really cool opening sequence. So this one, man, they went through the opening of the movie and there's all these things and then you get to that lavish opening kind of sequence where it goes through the song it's showing you the cast and there's all these effects that are going on of like bond going through all these different things so you had a um was this billy eilish this year um maybe i'm wrong but um Man, that opening sequence was pretty solid, too. That's one of the things I really appreciate about these Bond movies. It's so... They have a formula. And that sequence, where they're playing the, the song, and you have the elements kind of in the background that are... Those are, like, about as CGI effecty as they as they get in any of these things. And it's just so cohesive. It's like a whole dance routine, but done with elements of film shot in certain sequences and then created with CGI. So very solid. The score I had to give a nine out of 10 on this one, just because just because it complemented everything so well in the movie. Now, if we go through all of our points that totals a nice, even 80 points. So I was really pleased with this particular movie. Um, if you have, if you if you watch it in two parts, that's okay too because it's a really long movie. So take your time. If you have Amazon Prime, hey that rhymes. Um, watch it for sure. Even if you're, you know what, if you're not a Bond person and you haven't seen the other Bond films, you'll be left out of the loop a little bit with some of the interactions that are going on. Um, but just the grand scale of this movie, uh, I think personally is worth it. I'm a little biased, but uh, what are your thoughts? Any folks out there kept up with all these Bond movies? Did you go to the theater and watch this? Man, that, that, that would have been great on a great sound system for sure on a big screen. Um, but what's your thoughts? Let us know. We always ask this every time we end a podcast. What's your thoughts? Contact us. Send us an email. Hooray, hoorah. Um, what did you think of this movie? Would you have given it an 80? And why are we missing the previous movie? It's got to be an agreement. Like That's why it's not on there.